0: Hi, I'm Lori. And I'm Andrea. We're excited to welcome you
1: to the We Should Probably Talk About That podcast. We are so happy to have you here with us, and we can't wait to make it awkward.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to We Should Probably Talk About
1: That. Hello. Hello, Andrea. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. How's your week been? Um how's my how's your week been? My
0: week's been good. I had an amazing date last night and yeah, things were good.
1: Do Other ta- than that? Do you don't talk about it or No. No. Just, that just it was know amazing. Just know that it was good oh. and amazing. Good to know. Yeah. Not I didn't I did not have an amazing date last night. Why? I just don't date anymore. At all. <laughs> I don't. Um I'll tell you why too. No. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, do tell. my week, that was it. Your week was just mellow and then an amazing day. Yep. Yeah, it was mellow. I caught up on a lot of things at home and
0: unpacked. What did I unpack? I unpacked my storage unit because I'm not selling my house anymore and oh, that's it's not right. staged anymore. And yeah, so it's a bit of a cyclone and I get to do that this week. That's
1: fun. Yeah. But other than that, no, I had a great date and I'm
0: good. watching it snow outside. It's I been know. good got a lot of snow today. We did. I want to hear why you're not Um, dating.
1: No I'm I'm not not but I'm not. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes (laughs) yes and yes. No I'm still kind of coming out of my January fog that I was in for a week or so and it's been just kind of a week of catching up and laundry. And I went on another field trip this week with my daughter. Did I say I went on one last week? I don't remember. Fifth grade had two field trips in three days. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. No, but, um, so I don't go on dating apps anymore. The last time I was on one was when we did our male perspective Yeah. and I just jumped on just to like show them a couple things and it was just funny or whatever. And I hadn't been back on since then. So that was like a week. Was that just last week or no, was that two weeks ago? it was ago? two weeks ago. So yeah, I hadn't been on an app for a couple of weeks. But then I, I get random notifications every once in a while. That's okay. like, we found the perfect person. And I'm like, you no, gotta click can, on that. no, you didn't. Yeah, you gotta <laughs> click on it and see. But anyway, I had a message sitting there that I'd kind of forgot. Well, I hadn't read it, kind of forgotten about the match or whatever. And I ended up getting into this conversation with this guy a few nights ago. And it was like kind of one of those refreshing conversations where you're like, wow, he knows how to spell. He knows how to <laughs> we speak the same language. say whole sentences, like yes. low expectations. And he's knocking he it out. Could he carry of the on the conversation? Back yeah, and forth? yeah, it was that's good. Important. And we just really got into like this f- kind of funny bantery conversation. And then he said something about matching with me a while ago. And I was like, yeah, I I'll jump on an app for like, you know, a couple times in a day or two. And then I kind of disappear for three months at a time, at least. And, and he'd already told me that his birthday was in April. Okay. So I'm like, so with this timeline, if I disappear after this conversation tonight, I'll try to come back in time to <laughs> tell you happy birthday. birthday. And I thought that was funny, but I apparently, apparently I am not the comedian that I thought what? I was. Why?
0: Did he get mad? He got
1: so mad. And he's, he
0: got mad that you're going to f- fall away.
1: Yeah. And he, he's like, are you, are you serious right now? And I was like, what, wh- about what? Banter. About what thing? Cause there's a lot of things I'd said that well, yeah. I wasn't serious about. Yeah. And he's like, Andrea. And I was like, Oh, he's using my name. Don't spell my name. <laughs> like there's what? <laughs> I mean, business Andrea. It was weird. And he's like, dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, Oh, what? that means you're going
0: to get blasted when you get the dot, and dot,
1: dot. He just, he just kind of came at me with like, I feel like you're messing with me. In your bio, it says that you've moved back to Utah and you're starting over. And and now you're telling me that you disappear for three months at a time. So what about, what about disappearing for three months lines up with someone who has a desire to start over? And I'm like, <sighs> I am starting over. I'm like... I moved back to Utah as a single mom. I went back to work after 10 years of not being in the workforce. I went back to school. You didn't have to justify I, to him. But I like explained everything and I'm like, so I'm sorry if it seems weird that it's taken like me asshole. two and a half years to start over, but I'm still in the starting over phase of my life and I feel completely fine about it. And I said, oh, and then he said, again, like, well, how are you ever going to find someone to connect with if you disappear for three months at a time? And I said, I find friends to connect with, like, in real life. I said that I'm not going to apologize for that comment, because I do disappear for months, months at a time, zero online activity on the apps. And and I said, I have far better things that I'd rather spend my time doing than mindlessly scrolling an app. And he's well, like, and
0: maybe you should impress me enough to get me to want to continue talking to you.
1: Yeah. I of- mean, I was kind of like, I was kind of impressed. I don't know if I was impressed. I was bored. No. <laughs> but anyway, he's like, are you on, are you on like Adderall or crack? And I was like, I, I'm like, are you for real right now? This guy
0: sounds de- like deranged. Yeah.
1: I was like, first of all,
0: first of all, I'm
1: on Nyquil and heroin. Yeah, so nice try. I'm (laughs) guessing my drugs. get it right. (laughs) (laughs) One of those is legal. Like I kind of apologized for, like I said, maybe I need to read back through our messages and see where I completely derailed and went crazy, but. I don't know that I did. I said it felt like healthy banter and like good questions. And wow. if it was different than that for you, I'm sorry. And he, he's like, I didn't mean to be a dick. It really was a great conversation. Uh, but as it went on, I just felt like you were messing with me. And I was like, I wasn't messing with you. And then I got mad again. I had this full thing I was going to say back. And then he unmatched, unmatched me or blocked yeah. me. And so the whole message thread disappeared.
0: Yeah, that's a passive aggressive person. So,
1: anyway, needless to say, we're going to be posting his picture online. Forever. I don't even have no, his picture. I didn't screenshot days. anything. Dang it, I was telling have. someone about this at a party a couple nights ago and he's like, "Did you screenshot all oh, of it?" I and wish I'm you like,
0: would've. "No, it all disappeared." At least his picture so that other yeah. women don't run into
1: him. I'm not even going to say his name though cuz he doesn't deserve that. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure he's great. It's probably me. I probably need to just stop do- it. <laughs> We're going to work on that later. No, I'm Anyone just Anyone who accuses you no, of being on no. crack. The thing is, is he's right. I don't take it seriously. So if that's offensive. But wait a minute.
0: I think you take it seriously if you're on it and someone catches your attention. Everyone's idea of taking it, true or not true, everyone's idea of taking it seriously is different. Because, hello, I took it seriously for the past few months, but then I delete the apps and then I come back. So am I not serious either, according to Mr...
1: Happy. Matthew? I don't know if he comes back. I'll ask him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you match on his birthday again. Anyway, so that was my weird experience. But I got a massage this week. I got a pedicure. All those things I said I was doing. And I have a hair appointment them. scheduled for in a couple of days. So yeah, it's mostly been a good week. And welcome then, to the new year. Whatever. But yep. But speaking of being on heroin, that's a good segue that's into good. our topic. <laughs> No, it's not. I'm I mean, not yes. really on heroin. She's not on heroin. I did I did do a couple I did a couple shots of NyQuil. Like in appropriate doses. Oh, okay. Wait. I was like, <laughs> a couple is not good. No, a couple like over the course of feeling crappy last week. Yeah. So that part was true, but um
0: Um yeah. What Andrea means by that is a good segue. <laughs> We're not talking about heroin, but we are Andrea is celebrating on January twentieth.
1: That's right. So this episode will drop on the eighteenth.
0: Yeah, don't ask me to do that
1: right I now. I think it's the eighteenth.
0: And um, Andrea is celebrating four years of sobriety. Congratulations! Yes.
1: Four years sober. On, Which is if I make really it,
0: huge. You never know. No, <laughs> you're not going to get pushed off that cliff in the next that's few a, days. That's
1: a AA joke. When someone's really close to a milestone, they're like. If I make it. Betting too. on me or are we betting on alcohol? No, yeah. I think I'm going to make it. I feel I pretty think confident. Too.
0: I'm betting on you, baby. <laughs> I definitely think this is an episode that will um, not only open a lot of eyes, but also give some of our listeners something to think about as they either A, interact with people that they know who have had an addiction or are currently in addiction or you know, um, have a family member or if they are, I think it's, you know, that's the whole purpose. We started this podcast is to talk about things that aren't talked about. And I remember when I met you and you said you were sober. Actually, I lied. I didn't find that out after I met you. I found that out before because you so graciously shared a post once about it. And I just couldn't imagine it. And I think that's, something to list. That's why I want people to continue listening because I never would have thought that about your story, seeing Mm -hmm. you now don't get embarrassed, but you're a beautiful blonde mother of three who has everything life has to offer. You have a beautiful family and a great job and lots of friends. And when I found that out, I couldn't marry the two up and Mm -hmm. That's why I love that you're sharing this, because I think sometimes we don't realize people's struggles or past struggles or current struggles and what we've decided to talk about. And a lot of this I don't know. Um, Andrea's thought through a lot and prepared some stuff, and I'm so glad for that. And so I'll be learning and kind of uncovering this as we go. Andrea and I really, truly haven't talked about this in our friendship yet. Mm
1: -mm, We haven't. And I've mentioned in a couple episodes that I struggled with an addiction and that I'm sober, but yeah, I just felt like I've had enough people ask about it because I think it's, it's something that surprises people when they hear that I struggled so deeply with it and ended up going and getting help. And, um, and it's, it's one of those things that people, I feel like they want to ask questions, but they're nervous, like, Oh, is this going to embarrass her or how much yeah. are they allowed to talk about it? or is it going to trigger her and make her miss it or whatever? So I think so. I don't mind the questions. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I think some of the reason,
0: because again, I think we've said this, our friendship hasn't really evolved until we started this. Yeah. And I think we always knew this was one we wanted to do. And so I'm glad that I haven't asked a lot of questions because this will be be pretty raw. i yeah. sure, you know, for both of us, um, I have family members that struggle with addiction as well. And so uh, I was just speaking to Andrea before the, before we started. And I said, you know, understanding the whys and the, how did it get there? And I, I can't understand that. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I sadly said my biggest addiction is Diet Coke. And you yeah. know, that's, that's not even funny to say when we're talking about something that, is such a big thing in somebody's life. So, um, I'm going to first just kind of let you lead and then I'm going to okay. chime in as we go.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I feel I have more notes. I've jotted down more thoughts and notes for this episode than I ever have. We don't really take notes before, but, but I also feel the least prepared. Like we haven't talked about like what the story is going to be or where we're going to go with it. So, so we'll just see. I'm just gonna. I guess I'm just gonna start at the beginning for me. Um, so I was raised in the Mormon Church, which is a no, which is a dry religion, if you will, <laughs> no alcohol. Dry meaning no alcohol for those that don't <laughs> quite understand that. And so I was scared of alcohol. I had an uncle that drank, and or we thought he drank, and it was just kind of this mysterious, really thing of you know does he drink beer what does it do to him like it was kind of this scary it's not even
0: really talked about it is Mm-mm. kind of a scary no we thing. never
1: really talked about yeah, it it's just every don't... once in a while me and my brothers would say something about do you think he drinks alcohol or beer and um but that was like until I was 18 that was kind of all I the only it wasn't in my home it wasn't around me
0: and friends and neighbors, no. not really, in our community, had that. Yet. No, um,
1: and then when I was eighteen, At my house, we did. Just so you know, yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was eighteen, I moved to Germany, and you can drink when you're eighteen in Germany. And I got a job and made friends with people, and I drank a couple times in Germany, but it yeah. wasn't. It was just like, okay, I'll try one beer, and it was like that's disgusting. And be- yeah, beers yeah. are yeah. So for those two years that I lived in Germany, it was like. I'll do the shot to be cool, but it's really gross. And, and I would say from that point on, you know, I had like a few years where I got back in the church and didn't drink, but there was a handful of times over between 18 and 35 that I drank a few times, but it was, it never felt like it was an addiction. It never felt like, Oh, this is going to be a problem for me. It was just like, okay, whatever. I don't get it. I don't understand why people like this. Um, My husband's family drank, he, he drinks, they all drink. Um, so I remember moving to California when we'd only been married for about a year. And I remember feeling like I got to watch this because, because I was, it was like, I was back to being scared of alcohol because I had a baby, a three or four month old when we, or three month old when we moved. And then a month later I got pregnant. So what I was, you you got, I got to watch this. What do you I mean? got to, like, I was scared to be around alcohol. Oh. Like it was going to be a part of raising our kids. Cause uh, I was gotcha. married to someone that bought alcohol sure. when we went grocery shopping. And, um, and I just remember thinking this is going to be weird. Cause I don't know how to how I ha- read let my kid kids with this see this and sure. how to explain why dad we, gets that. Again, but we don't, we
0: don't talk, even yeah. talk about it here.
1: And then I was pregnant or breastfeeding for like six years. I hear so you, sister. There was nothing. And, my husband would try to get me to drink once in a while. He's like, "I just feel like it would calm you down," and I just had zero desire. Yeah, and,
0: well, yeah, because what you had tasted didn't taste mm-hmm.
1: good. And we'd go out to we have a date night finally, and I would try to have a drink, and I was just like, "I can't. I just don't like this." And um, and then somewhere, um, and and in his family. Like I, I'm going to be careful that I don't speak too much into the struggles with alcohol in that family, but I will say they're significant. Mm. Um, it's a it's a it's a problem for a lot of generations in that family, um, and so I think there was part of me that was like, in case he gets too dependent on alcohol, I need to be the parent that never drinks and I was fine with that it that wasn't I didn't sense. feel like I was making a sacrifice I was like I don't drink and yeah. I'm gonna be and I'll do this role the, one. Yeah. yeah um and then about about I don't know six years into our marriage six or seven years in um it was never good our marriage was I never was happy I felt I felt like I kind of got duped into moving to California um he was in a family business that was it was the oldest business in the town we lived in multi-generation um and he just kind of eased back into his life and knew everyone and had a his you know his dad was his boss and he was working at the family business and everyone just loved them and I was just kind of this fish out of water, like, oh, I don't have anyone here. And I'm a pregnant lady with a tiny baby and no friends. And so that's kind of how the journey started, which was only a year into our marriage, the journey of like losing myself and feeling isolated. And then as our marriage went on and he got more heavily involved in community stuff and service organizations, I just, was alone a lot I spent a lot of time alone and um about six years in to our marriage I s- became the PTA president at my my kids went to a private Christian school
0: so did you have two kids at the or three three okay
1: three by this time all three okay. yeah and um and I you know this it's hard I I it's hard to talk about struggling with an addiction without ever making it sound like someone else talked you into it or you know I don't want anything I it was all my choice I picked up the bottle I consumed the alcohol nobody forced me to but I I definitely gravitated to people who uh were drinkers and I don't know why but I think it was just like oh they seem happy and carefree and and I worked with a woman um at the school she was one of the she and I were professional volunteers, we used to say. <laughs> and she introduced me to wine, and I'd never tasted wine before, but that became my thing almost overnight. Really? hmm about six years into our marriage. And I loved it, and I became addicted to it almost immediately. And for the first year, it was like I wouldn't drink until dinner time, and... Just have a couple glasses, but the craving became so intense for me that I I could not get enough.
0: Craving? What were you craving? The way it made you feel? I was craving the
1: way it made me feel because I definitely transit. Like I started with like sweet white wine, yeah, because it was like fruity and like it was like like a dessert, Yeah. yeah. And then I, by the time I ended up quitting, I was on dry red. And I was drinking two or three bottles of wine every day. And um, I was spending between $500 and $600 a month on alcohol, just in like grocery shopping alcohol. If I went out, it was way more than that. But I had kind of like earmarked about $500 a month just for my at-home alcohol consumption. And... um, and then if I ran out of wine in my day, I would start drinking whiskey. My husband had whiskey. There was always something, you know, some hard liquor somewhere. And I just drank and drank. I my goal was to blackout every night. Like how, I
0: So how long are we talking? From the introduction to wine and loving it
1: quickly to three, drinking to blackout? Almost three years. Wow. And I didn't it wasn't blackout for probably the first year. The first year was evening and then it was just like I'd get really tired and then the kids go to bed and then I'd get in a fight with my husband and I'd run out of alcohol. So I'd go to bed. You know, I I considered myself a high functioning alcoholic because I was the PTA president the entire time I was drinking for three or four years in a row. And I raised more money for that school than any PTA. Like I did what I did well, but I was drinking all the time. And the last year of my drinking, um, my life got completely out of control. I was driving drunk all the time. I was drinking in the morning. I was drinking. I'd like time myself to try to sober up enough that I could drive to the school to pick up my kids, get them home and then start drinking again. More often than not, and I hate to admit this, I wasn't sober when I drove to pick up my kids. Um, I got caught drinking at the school. I would do fundraisers at the school and I would sneak wine in like disposable coffee cups one of the teachers I don't know who it was uh but I got reported to the pastor of the church who was over the school that they knew that I was consuming alcohol on campus and it was humiliating but it was still like I justified it away like I found ways to say like no but look I'm yeah I'm completely drunk but like yeah, I'm raising productive. all this money at this yeah. talent show and this barbecue and this barn dance. Like, I'm doing really good things drunk, so did, I'm fine. So just mind your business and did, let me. Did any of your family members know this? Because no, they lived here. They lived here. No one knew. Did um, any
0: of his family members do you think pick up on it?
1: Yeah, they did. Uh,
0: but probably with the history behind it, it was just to don't really talk about it. Thing.
1: Well, it they they oh, that's a tough one because. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff I don't remember, Um,
0: which is completely makes sense. Yeah,
1: but like we would, the the business was kind of struggling during that time, and I think it had a lot to do with my husband kind of, like he and I struggling, and so we'd have family meetings with his family. Sure, but it was like you had to have alcohol every member of the family. It wasn't like okay don't drink tonight. We need to talk. It was like, come over and drink with dinner. and Then we'll all take our wine glasses to the living room. And then we're going to sit and talk. And I had some fights with I remember one fight with my husband's sister that about destroyed her. And I was completely intoxicated and just yelling at her and yelling at it. I mean, it was it was awful. Like, it was a the darkest season of my life for sure.
0: Of course. I'm sure that it was. And you're so brave for sharing it because not a lot of people would want to share this part.
1: Um, so, so yeah, things like getting caught drinking at the school. Um, you know, I had a couple moments where I was like, is this my rock bottom? Is this it? Or can I get lower? You know, and it wasn't a goal to get lower, but I was like, is this, this is is this as hard as it's going to get? And I can like, pull it together. And, you know, I was finding myself like researching every night, is red wine good for you? And you can find literally anything you want on the internet that supports anything. So I was like, no, it's actually really good for my heart.
0: I don't know if three (laughs) bottles a night and then four (laughs) shots
1: of whiskey is good for my heart, but some level of red wine is good for my heart. So I'm going to just keep that information in my head when I get blackout drunk tonight. And I just got on this site and I would wake up in the middle of the night just still with a hangover and I would make notes in my phone of how awful I felt, what I remembered from the night before, I need help, I can't live like this, and I would read those to my husband the next morning and just say like, I need help, I can't have alcohol in the house, so I wouldn't buy any that day, but then I would call him in the afternoon and ask him to stop and buy wine. And I've had this conversation with him actually very recently. Um, and he remembers certain parts of it the same and certain parts of it different. And I'm not going to say who's right or wrong. Sure, There's a chance he's right because I was drunk all the time. So I'm going to f- fully admit that. But the one thing that he did admit is that when I asked him to buy me wine, and I would say, just bring home one bottle. Like, I, I just need a little bit, but I can't have more than a bottle. He always brought home more than one. He never just bought one. And so, so I did begin to feel like he was kind of enabling me like he does have a rescuer kind of savior complex. And so I was like, he likes it when I'm out of control, and he has to pick up the pieces. And it just became this, it was a constant battle. And we were fighting all the time. And then I would beg him to help me and then I'd be mad and um, and in that last the last few months before I got help, I did start calling my mom when I was drunk. Yeah, randomly, uh, she was living in Utah. This was I was still in California, and um, I didn't have a relationship with my dad at all at that time. And my mom had stopped coming to visit me because I didn't allow my dad to come, and that was really hard on me because yeah, I you were very alone. I didn't think it should be like. I didn't think it was fair. Yeah. And I wouldn't say anything. And I kind of isolated myself away from my family for several years. And I also felt like my husband isolated me away from my family. I felt like he liked the control of keeping me in California and wanting me to love California and not like he wanted me to just fully depend on him. And I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's the way that I felt was that he liked it when I, yeah. He liked it when I struggled with anything because he felt like the hero. Exactly. And, but I would call my mom when I was drunk, and I would yell at her and cry, cry to her and tell her how much I needed her. And at the beginning, she didn't know I was drunk when I was calling. And then I think she probably ended up talking to my husband a couple of times. I don't know how she found out, but uh, there was one night when I was in my backyard, and we had, like, an above-ground pool that had, like, a gravel... Bottom and I, like around the pool, and I had a glass of wine and I was yelling at my mom and I threw the glass of wine into the gravel, and it just shattered and glass just went everywhere and you know like things like that. It's like how did I, how did I get to that point? Because then the next day it's like I can't let my kids go in the pool because I got to figure out how to clean up all these shards of glass and like my life got out of control. My life was completely out of control. I was in therapy. I was lying to my therapist at the time. And I'm sure he knew. And that's very common. But I just was telling him like, No, like, I actually went a couple days without drinking. And I think, you know, he'd like, he before he realized how bad the problem was, he would talk to me about just removing myself from the situation, sitting in my car, listening to music, putting lemonade in a wine glass. So you kind of have the muscle memory feeling of what it's like, but you're not drinking alcohol. And I was like, yeah, it's helping it's working. And then I didn't tell him that I was taking wine to my car with me to listen to music. Why do you
0: think that is? Because you didn't want to disappoint him.
1: I didn't want to stop. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to stop drinking.
0: So how many years before we move <clears throat> forward, how many years from learning to love wine to this point where you're lying to your therapist, how many years has it been?
1: It had only at that point it had been about two and a half years. Two and a half, mm-hmm.
0: from first drinking to lying to your therapist. Yeah, I want to illustrate that how quickly that is. Yeah, I mean, that's terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. That, because obviously, a when you said I was always kind of gravitating towards drinkers because they were fun and because well, you were very sad in the life you were in, mm-hmm. right? And I've been there, pregnant or nursing for eight years. I get it. I had four instead of three. And you do feel alone. And then in two and a half years, here's where you end up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when I, when I uh, look back at that time, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't make my own friends in California. There was a group of nine of us moms that how could out. you?
0: You had these babies. I like, know. Like, really?
1: And these nine mom friends, we all had a child that was the same age, and it was the age of my oldest. So we met when our kids were in preschool. We all were at this little Christian school. So it was kind of like our kids chose each other because there weren't a lot of options. And these kids were great. The moms were great. I love them. Yeah. Um, but when I look back on that time, it wasn't – I wasn't being myself. So those relationships couldn't have been authentic because I wasn't being true to myself. And they all drank. That, that's what we did. We'd have mom's night out and we'd go drink. And um, and I felt... It, this is hard for me to talk about because I know a couple of them listen to this. And I really do consider them my true friends. They were my only friends. Um, but I I felt like I had to be somebody that I wasn't. And like this, you know... We had a night at my house one December and we made ornaments and then we passed all of our ornaments around and we all wrote our names on the back of every ornament. And I looked at that ornament this Christmas and just read each of their names on the back and thought about them. Like I loved them, but I was never connected in a deep friendship way with them because we were.
0: Do you feel like though that it's because you didn't really know who you were? It
1: was completely because I didn't know who I was and because i felt so strongly that i had to put on a show because i was the only one in that group that didn't work there was a lot of a lot of tough situations for a lot of them and i would you know you and i have said this a million times we're just kind of the people that everyone come to for yeah. help and support and in that group in particular i felt that with a lot of them because i was the stay at home mom with the husband who owned a business and made good money and I I from the outside looking in I had a near perfect life sure and um so I could never have anything wrong with me I could never be sad I could never struggle because I had all these people around me that were barely hanging on and that had some really hard stuff going on in their lives and yeah. and I had to be good. I had to be okay. Like I had no in my mind it was like I have no right to complain. I'm a stay-at-home mom, flexibility, great kids, healthy kids, hard-working husband, like we owned a home. I'm I have to be good. I can't have anything wrong with me.
0: Yeah.
1: So yeah, there was a lot of a lot of things that now that I look back at that time in California, it was like I don't know. I didn't know who I, who I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I was ex- expected to play a part for my husband as well and he didn't want me to I he didn't want me to add any stress he was very much in the public eye he was involved in a lot of things and everyone knew his family and all the men in his family look alike so even men that didn't know him recognized him and knew his grandpa knew his great grandpa and know his dad and his uncle and it was just like we just had to look a certain way and act a certain way and be be happy. And I've said this so many times, like one of the biggest reasons that I left California is because I saw, I saw what that family, the, the need for perfection in that family business, I saw what that did to the family. And I said, I will not protect a family business at the expense of my family. Right. And I feel like in his family, they were willing to lose family relationships to make the business look perfect and I won't do that
0: that's so dangerous
1: yeah um so anyway I had a couple other going back to just my heavy drinking my kids started noticing it more I would I would literally pass out while I was reading with them at night Mm. um my daughter so when I started drinking my youngest was only a year and a half and that's a tough like I've been looking back at pictures and seeing my kids, like, so little, Yeah. um, when they lost me for a time, um, because I look at them now, and they're still so young, but, it, like, to, to take myself back to that, it was like, wow, they were little, you know, my youngest was one and a half, and that would have meant my other two were three and four, um, when I started drinking, and that's just, I mean, preschool, you know, I had one at home with me still, and two in preschool, and, um, but when my youngest turned four, I think it was her fourth birthday, and this is a really embarrassing story, but I'm going to still share it. Um, we had, like, an afternoon picnic party for her in the backyard with, like, our neighbors over, and our closest friends, and the whole families, and it wasn't like, an adult night party. This was a four-year-old birthday party in the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. And my mom was in town for it. And, um, and I got so drunk at her birthday party um, that I ended up having to go in the house. And I fell asleep straddling the toilet. Um, and don't know when people left. Didn't don't, I don't remember anything about that party. And the next morning, um, I somehow got to my bed and the next morning when I woke up, I said to my husband, um, I said, we didn't sing happy birthday. We didn't like, we didn't serve the cake. Like what, how did we forget to do dessert? And he just had this look on his face, like what is happening right now? And, He's like, are you serious right now? And I'm like, yeah, we didn't like, how did, how did we forget that? And he's like, look at your phone, pull your phone out. And I pulled my phone out and he's like, look through your pictures. And I started scanning through pictures of the birthday party. And there were pictures of me carrying a birthday cake out, a video of me carrying her birthday cake out, singing happy birthday to her, picking her up and holding her on my lap and, like her cute little face like blowing out these candles and i had no memory of that um that was tough that was a tough thing for me to um oh sorry
0: geez don't be sorry you're brave for sharing this
1: i missed so much of my kid's childhood. Sure. I lost so much of it to alcohol. Um, so yeah, that wasn't my rock bottom though. And I don't even know. Um, so that would have been in March and I didn't get help until the next February. Um, so another year of drinking went by after that. Um, it's hard to know how much to share. Like I said, like, I feel like I jotted down a bunch of notes, but I still feel really unprepared. But, um, I just had a couple other, um, one, I'll just share this one other thing that was kind of a a scary experience for me that we, we had some neighbors across the street and the husband was a heavy drinker as well and the four of us would get together a lot and drink and there was one night where they were at our house and I <coughs> I drank so much that night and they left and I and I remember them leaving and then I remember my husband going to bed and I was still sitting in the living room and I remember thinking if I if I go to sleep I'm going to die like I had so much alcohol in my system that I didn't believe that if I let my body go to sleep that i would wake up like i just you i could feel it i could feel it and so i i remember dragging a chair over to the edge of our couch and like prop like leaning it up to the arm of the couch so there was no way that i could like accidentally recline back or like tip it back or whatever and i sat there in that chair for probably 5 hours yeah. And forced myself to stay awake, forced myself to drink water. But I was so drunk that it was just like I couldn't get any water in my system. And um, it was shortly after that that I realized that this, this is really like I'm, I'm killing myself. Yeah, I'd never had that thought until that night where it was like this is I've completely lost control. And I'm not gonna survive if I keep living like this. Um, And the next morning, I hadn't, I think I finally slept for a couple hours. And um, I don't know if it was the next morning after that incident, but it was shortly after that. That I did, how and I just kept getting drunk. And that's the thing, it was like I'd have such a horrible hangover that I'd almost get to where I was like thankful for my hangovers every day because I was like, maybe this will be the night where the hangover lasts so far into the day that I won't start day drinking. Maybe I can make it one day without alcohol. And it got to where I would just drink through hangovers. I just was drinking all the time. I felt horrible all the time. I mm. never slept. I felt. I was a mess. And there was one morning where I'd had a a night like that. And I said to my husband, I don't, I don't want to wake up. I want to fall asleep and have the alcohol kill me. And, um, it was, it was at that point where I realized I was actually suicidal, that I, uh, needed help. And, I followed a random comedian on Instagram and I saw this post that day that he had posted about this treatment center in Tennessee that he'd gone to. Um, and I immediately got online and researched it and I applied and got response back and I got accepted into this program. Um, and I had to I had to do a 14-day detox before they would let me come. And wow. So that was January 20th of 2019 that I quit drinking. And 14 days later, I flew to Nashville, Tennessee. And then the next day, I entered a program in a town called Cumberland, Furnace, Tennessee. And that program changed my life. Um, but that 14-day detox was Oh, I can't even. It imagine. was hard, every every were, second of you, every day. You had to
0: have been alone going through it, right? I yeah. mean, your ex is at work. Your friends yeah. wouldn't understand. Did you tell anyone you I didn't, were doing this? I didn't tell anyone. Oh my
1: goodness! I didn't. I was the PTA president at that time, and I didn't even tell the. I didn't tell anyone I was leaving, and it was it was in February, the beginning of February, that I went, and so I had like a big Valentine's fundraiser, but I. I there nothing mattered except not dying that became the only thing and I'm so glad you stopped so I basically just hid out hid hid in my house for two weeks to detox um but I had this when I got to Nashville um I I stayed in a hotel in Nashville, and then the next morning there was a shuttle that picked me up back at the airport to take me to this program in Cumberland Furnace. And um, there was a gas station right next to the hotel that I was staying at. And um, I was so scared when I got there because I was sure I wouldn't be able to do it. I, you know, it was expensive. It was about $1,000 a day to go to this program. And, um, so it was a big financial investment and I just thought I, I'm not going to be able to stay sober. Like, this is a waste of money, waste of time to fly. I'm leaving my kids. What are my kids going to think? Like, and I, I sat in that hotel room and it was Super Bowl Sunday. I flew in on a Sunday. And I thought to myself, I can't do this. Like, I still want to go to this program tomorrow morning, but I can't stay sober tonight. I need to take the edge off. I remember sitting in that hotel room thinking I need to take the edge off. And I left my hotel room. I didn't have a car. There was a gas station basically in the same parking lot. And I walked over to the gas station. And this is, I've never told anyone this story. Um... But I walked back to the cooler section, like the refrigeration section in the gas station, to where the beer was. And, you know, if I... I would have had to lie if I drank, because they wouldn't have let me come to the program. Right, they would have sent you home. Um, And I put my hand on the door of this refrigerator. And I saw my reflection in the glass. And I... I, oh my gosh. I just froze for a second as I looked at my reflection and I I heard my own voice like as clear as day in my head. And and I said, "If you drink tonight, you're never going to stop." Mm. And I still had my hand on the handle of the door and then I heard my voice in my head say if you don't make it to that treatment center tomorrow sober then this is gonna fucking kill you. I'm so proud you listened.
0: What a hard battle in that
1: 30 seconds. It was. It was hard. So I let go of the handle and I turned around and I walked out of the gas station back over to my hotel. I don't even know who was playing in the Super Bowl, but I just sat and stared at the TV and I called my kids and I FaceTimed with my kids. And and then the next morning I Ubered back to the airport and got on a shuttle and went to Cumberland Furnace for this program. And I was only there for seven days and it was the most intense life-changing experience that i've ever had in my life and i'm not even going to share anything about that experience except for that it completely changed my trajectory and um by the end of by the end of that program i knew i knew that i was done with alcohol i knew I knew why I started drinking like it just all it just it just changed my life. Um, the one thing that I will share that the very end of this program that I did they had us you know everyone was there for different reasons it wasn't all alcohol addiction there was you know as it was everything any wow. struggle any addiction any just whatever um, I won't even go into detail about what some people were there for but we near the end of the program, they asked us to write a breakup letter with our coping mechanism of choice, sure. our addiction of choice or whatever it was. And I'm going to share that letter. I, f- I found it today and I'm just going to read that letter. Um, Cause I feel like it's, a, it was a pretty powerful experience for me to kind of give alcohol a name, give it a purpose in my life and then kind of see how it, Changed over time and became something that I, I was no longer in control of. So, um, anyway, dear alcohol, I don't remember when I first met you or where, but I know that I was scared of you for years. I couldn't understand why anyone needed you. As I got older, I'd bump into you at restaurants or parties or other pe- and other people seemed to enjoy you. I'd try you out from time to time, and it never impressed me. And still, I didn't understand why anyone needed you as a regular part of their life. But then, a few years ago, life just didn't seem to be something I could manage on my own anymore. I felt so alone and paralyzed by shame. My shame grew out of control, and I felt unworthy of love and unable to accept my reality. I felt desperate for peace. So I brought you into my life with the hope that you would help. You quickly became something I depended on to make it through each day. I had a hard time admitting to myself or truly believing how quickly I became dependent on you. I was so desperate to find relief that I let you see my darkest moments. But now you have become my darkest moments. You have taken rest from me. You have taken time from me. You have taken friendships from me. You have taken memories from me. You have taken money from me. You have taken family experiences from me. You have taken my self-worth. You've scared my children and you've threatened my family. You are no longer serving me and I am taking my life back from you. I deserve recovery. I will no longer bear the pain of the untold story inside of me. Today I feel courageous, hopeful, happy, sad, peaceful, and safe all at the same time. I'm feeling again. I'm truly feeling again. I'm beginning to heal, and you will no longer be a part of my story. Sincerely, Andrea White. Um, and on the very last the last night we were at this treatment center, they built a huge bonfire outside, and it was so cold. I just remember freezing and then walking up to this huge fire, and they'd had us get a bunch of slips of paper, and they wanted us to write down lies that we were telling ourselves. Oh. Like, to be prepared to leave wow. there, they wanted us to really pay attention to the lies we were still still telling ourselves and then write them down on this fire or write write them down on these pieces of paper and then take them to the bonfire and then we all read them and crumpled them up and threw them into the fire and I I made a note in my notebook of the lies that I was writing on these papers and the lies that I wrote were I'll never be happy my trauma is too much for me to ever heal my kids deserve a better mom I don't deserve to be loved. And I can't stay sober. And I read those to this group of people that a week ago were complete strangers. And at this point, they were the safest people that I'd ever, ever been around. And we just cried. We just all cried and read these lies and threw them in the fire. And... I remember throwing that last one in the fire that says I can't stay sober, and I knew. I knew when I threw that in the fire that I I had to I had to stay sober, um. And I have four years, I'm so four years in a couple days, um. So that's my that's my story, you know, um. And I don't know I don't know how helpful it is to to just hear a story like that because you know what a lot of people can't fly across the country to go get help and a lot of people can't afford to spend seven or eight thousand dollars on an intense recovery program and you know it's like how what are practical ways to help people and um what i will say is that the day that i got back from from tennessee i started going to AA. And AA is free and it works. Um, I don't talk a lot about AA because I want to be really express. Er, I want to be really respectful of the program, um, but because I truly believe in it. And I got a sponsor. I went to meetings every single day. Recovery became my full time job for six months. I craved alcohol every day for six months after I got home from Tennessee and um it was at 6 months sober that my husband and I separated and after that the craving went away almost overnight um and so that kind of seg- segues me into just something else that I just want to spend a couple minutes talking about when it comes to really understanding addiction because one thing that I that I struggled with is that my family and and here's the thing like I never felt like my my like my siblings and my parents I never felt like they owed me anything. They'd never dealt they'd never seen someone struggle with an addiction. They sure. didn't understand it. Like you can't understand it until you've gone through it. But I felt very like none of them asked me about my experience in Tennessee. They all they all knew right before I went that I was going, but no one no one's ever asked me about it still 4 years later. It's just not something that I mean my mom my mom has now that she and I have gotten closer but it's it's hard to love an addict and so if you're listening to this and you have a family member or a loved one that's struggling with an addiction there is there's such a fine line between loving and enabling and it is it's a tough thing to do and um one thing that I would highly recommend for for people who have someone in their life that is struggling with addiction is going to there's support meetings for people who have a loved one that's an addict and um, they're called al anon meetings there's um for teenagers like if they have a parent that's an addict there's alateen there's nar anon which is for narcotics like there's there's stuff available for everyone and 12 step programs work alcoholics anonymous works i did the steps i read the book i had a sponsor like I took it so seriously, and that's how I stayed sober. Like, this program in Tennessee changed my life, truly changed my life, but Alcoholics Anonymous is what kept me sober.
0: Yeah, you got to do the work after.
1: Yeah. Um, And I wish I would have asked my parents to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Like, now looking back, it was like they loved me. They wanted to love me. They wanted to support me. They wanted... They wanted to understand, but I just wanted them to understand. I didn't want to say like, I don't know how to understand this. So go to this, go to these meetings. They're everywhere. They're literally everywhere and all the time. Just Google it wherever you live and you can find these meetings and they're so incredibly helpful. Um, but I wanted to share really quick about a Ted talk because when I was on the airplane flying to Tennessee, I read or I was listening to a Ted Ted talk from Brene Brown. My I love. I, lo- I do too. I yep. love her so much. Um, The TED Talk was entitled The Power of Vulnerability. And in that, she said something that I really felt a shift in me. And it reminded me of my daughter's birthday party that I had no recollection of. And what she says is that, and she's talking about coping mechanisms and addiction. She said, we cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive emotions. When we numb hard feelings, we numb joy, we numb gratitude, we numb happiness. And and then at the very end of her TED Talk, she says something. At the, at the time, it didn't make sense to me. But she said, the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And I kept that in my mind for so long. And I've even shared that with some of my own clients who struggle with addiction but and I have one client specifically that I've talked to a lot about this other TED talk that I just want to touch on briefly, because this is where it really made sense to me, that really believing that the opposite of addiction is connection. And this is this was a TED talk by Johan Hari. And he shares this experiment, like he's really just trying to figure out what causes addiction, if there's actual chemical hooks in substances that we become addicted to and can everyone become addicted and why do some people you know it's just like how do we understand like is this really a disease do i have the disease like just and and he shares this experiment that was done by a professor of philosophy named uh, bruce alexander and this experiment was that dr alexander put one rat in a cage with two bottles of water one of the wa- one of the bottles was plain water the other bottle was laced with heroin or cocaine and in every incident where he put a single rat in a cage with water and laced water the rat gravitated to the heroin laced water okay drank it all overdosed and died and so he was he was in that early in that experiment he's like oh so we gravitate to the substance. We just, we're just going to all struggle if we, but then later on, he built a whole little city and he, he ended up calling it rat park and it was full of cheese and colorful balls and tunnels and toys. Other rats, the rats had their friends with them. They could play. They had just endless adventure. And in rat in rat park, he also put plain water and heroin laced water. And he watched these rats, and they, some of them would go to the heroin water, but they wouldn't stay. They all drank the regular water. Not, not one single rat consumed too much of the heroin water to where they overdosed. So in 100% of the incidences where the rat was alone and isolated, he overdosed and died. Yeah. And the rat park, there was 0% overdose. Or death, and and the idea is that when you're happy and connected, you don't choose that. It's it's about the you know his explanation of this is that it's about the cage that they were in. Um, and then it, you know, and people are like, well, that's rats. What about humans? And during the same time that he was doing the study, was during the Vietnam War. And twenty percent of I just learned this recently. Twenty percent of the Americans that fought in Vietnam used heroin every single day while they were in Vietnam. And there were news reports that you can find where they're like, we know these people are doing drugs in Vietnam. And when they come home, we're going to have a whole military full of addicts. Wow. So they followed this the group that were just open about doing using heroin every day in Vietnam. They followed them home and nobody went to rehab. And 95% of them quit immediately when they got home. And so that was kind of a human... and unplanned human experiment to see if it's if it's about your environment environment. Yeah. yeah and so you know his his question was what if it's not chemical hooks what if it's what if addiction is about your cage not about your brain or your addictive tendencies what if it's about the cage that you're in yeah and that caused me to look back on my whole life in california and the one thing that i've said to so many people who asked about my marriage and moving back to utah was i felt completely disconnected i felt isolated and i felt like my husband thought i was invisible so i was i was in a cage by myself and as humans we are we we need to connect with people like our brains we we bond We have to bond with other people. Right. And, you know, Brene Brown talks all the time about how we're fundamentally wired to connect. And if we are not in a healthy place to connect with other people, we will find something to bond with. And alcohol, red wine became what the thing that I bonded with because I was craving connection so deeply and I wasn't finding it in my reality. So I had to get away from that, but I needed something to bond to And it was alcohol. And this becomes really controversial because I do believe that I was addicted to alcohol. I don't believe that I'm an alcoholic. When I separated from my husband and when I removed myself from that situation and I got out of that cage, the craving was gone. I'm not tempted by it. I don't want to drink. I'm not going to drink. But I don't think that I have... Alcoholic tendencies of people who, I mean, I attended a lot of AA meetings, and there were people in there that had been sober for 30 years, and they had to go to meetings several times a week to say sober. I don't have to do that. I've gone to one meeting since I moved to Utah, and it was a month ago when I was in California. In California. And I walked into that meeting and I'd been at a Christmas party and I was in this formal gown. And the meetings that I went to, I loved AA, but I went to meetings at night because I didn't want my kids to have me gone. So I went to meetings when my kids were in bed. And I lived on the border of East Los Angeles. So you can imagine if I could paint you the picture.
0: East LA. it
1: It was me and about 30 Hispanic men. that looked like they wanted to kill people. And And those men, those people became my people. Like those rooms, those AA meetings were the most honest connections I've ever made in my life, because they were people who also knew that if they didn't get help, they were going to they were going to die or they were going to go back to prison. Several of them had been to prisons. Several of them were court ordered to be at AA and they had court cards. They had to get signed. Like, and then there's this little white girl with blonde hair walking into these meetings. And I loved it. I, they, I loved that part of my life because it felt like I could be exactly who I was. Um, But I went, I went to a Christmas party last month in California a Christmas party I'd gone to several times when I lived there. Every year that I lived there, I'd never been to it and stayed sober. And this was the first time that I attended it sober and um, just felt really out of place, but it wasn't hard to stay sober. But it was almost like I craved Alcoholics Anonymous when I left there because I was like, really? that's not my scene. And so I pulled up, There's a there's a meeting app that you can get on your phone. So I hurried and downloaded that again found a meeting at the place that i went to my very first ever meeting there was a ten thirty p.m meeting and it was like ten thirty four. i was right there so i pulled into the parking lot and i walked into this meeting in this formal gown and i sat there with these men for an hour Talk and a half
0: about sticking out i know
1: they're like uh sorry you're in
0: the wrong place prom this is the at the high class.
1: school <laughs> bunko's next door um but I sat there and I listened to these people share. And there was a man there who was uh, hitting 10 years sober at midnight was his tenure. So they had a cake for him. It's a whole birthday party thing. I've never had a sobriety birthday party and I don't want one. So okay. don't surprise I me won't. on
0: Friday. Damn it. Now I got to call 30 people.
1: But this man asked people to share. Like he was kind of in charge of like, People he'd like to hear from. And I'm like, well, he doesn't know me. I don't know him. Everyone here is clearly here to support him. So I'm good to just sit and listen. The very end of the meeting, 15 minutes before the end of the meeting, he looked at me and he's like, will you get up and share? And I was like, yeah, I, I sh- sure will. So I walk up and then my heels and my dress and up to the front of the room. And I've stood at that podium in this building so many times and I've shared so many times, but that moment for me was a completely different experience because you have to, you know, in AA meetings, it really is like you see it in the movies. Yeah, You don't speak until you say, hi, my name's Andrea and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. So I stood in front of those people and I said, hi, my name's Andrea and I'm an alcoholic. And I heard myself say that. And my immediate thought was, no, I'm not, but I'm so glad I'm sober. And I shared for the last 15 minutes of this meeting. And I had this, and it was great. And I cried and I talked about this Christmas party I'd just gone to and how AA felt so much more comfortable to me than a formal expensive $150 a plate dinner that I'd just gone to. And, and I just had this moment where I thought I wish I wish that Andrea who stepped into that building for her very first ever AA meeting four years ago, could look in the window and see who's standing there now. I love that. She'd be so proud.
0: So proud.
1: Yeah, and I am proud. I'm really proud of myself. Um, I'm thankful for... I'm thankful for the struggles that I've had. I'm thankful that I had those rock bottom moments where, where I saw, I saw myself like slowly killing myself. And um, it's hard, you know, they, t- they talk a lot in AA about doing life on life's terms. And that's a tough thing. And when I left this treatment center in Tennessee, I'd met a friend there who'd been sober for 17 years. He was there for something else at this time. But when he and I were saying goodbye to each other, he goes, remember, getting sober is the easy part. It's everything that you've been numbing with alcohol that's about to come to the surface when you get home, that's going to be the hard part. He's like, but the good news is, is that the only thing that has to change is everything. And he kind of laughed, and I was like, "I don't know what that means." But then I got home, and I realized that everything had to change. Sure, and your everything routine, did change. Your friends, your... Yeah, different everything. Yeah, I had this one grocery, and in California they sell alcohol in the grocery stores. And I had my go-to grocery store, and there are two sets of doors, and one of the sets of doors is wine aisles. The second you walk in, it's all the wine. And for six months, I would not go in that door. I went in the other door. Like, it was that present in my mind all the time. Like, I didn't let myself walk past alcohol. Like, everything changed. And staying alive, staying sober, showing up for my kids, and not letting this take my life became my only priority and... It's possible. It's possible to get help. It's possible to to love again. It's possible to find yourself and feel worthy and forgive yourself for the way that you coped when you were living in survival mode. And. And I'm thankful for where I am now. I'm so glad. You know,
0: the common thing that I keep seeing through it is um, you decided to put yourself first. Yeah. I had to. And then what the gift that I see that a a brings and your your um therapy that you went to, you had to be vulnerable and not perfect. Yeah, right? And I think that's one thing you and I very much have in common is that we weren't allowed to really have emotions or cause a lot of waves and we had to be perfect and We couldn't be vulnerable with anybody. So that explains when you left your ex, how you didn't have those cravings anymore because you didn't have to put your mask on and you could be vulnerable in your AA meetings. Yeah. And you weren't allowed that in that rat town pretty much.
1: (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, I was in, I was in the isolation when I was not in rat what do they call it, Rat Park? Rat Park, not Rat <laughs> Maybe Town. if someone would have provided me with a lot of cheese and some and colorful, colorful balls. I know. <laughs> no, but I mean, it is, it's about connection and, you know, and I was, we've talked a lot about social media and, and how we feel like we're living in the most connected day and age yeah. where we have everything available at our fingertips and thousands of, you know, Twitter followers and thousands of matches on dating apps or whatever it is, but, The reality is, is we are, we are one of the most lonely generations because there's, there's a difference between being in Rat Park, really connecting with people and having it be a mindless scroll on our phones. and. I looked at Facebook today and I have like 1100 and something friends, which isn't a lot compared to, (laughs) to to the way a lot of people connect on different platforms. Like I don't use a lot of social media platforms and stuff, but I thought 1100 and some odd people. And if I was in true crisis, if I, if I was in true crisis, I can tell you that I can count on one hand, the people that I would reach out to for help. Yeah. It wouldn't be the people that like my posts. Every time. It wouldn't be yeah. the people that watch my stories religiously. It wouldn't It wouldn't be those people. It's it's a very, very small group of people. And I think that we're lonely. I think we're lonely. And then we, we look at addicts and think, why can't they just stop? What's wrong with them? And we're kind of isolating addicts away, saying, like, go get help. Fix yourself. Don't come out when you're high. Don't do this. And... It's like they they need connection more than anyone because they're connecting to their coping mechanism of choice. And that was, a, that was just a huge thing for me to realize that that, I mean, this, I think Brene Brown probably got that from Dr. Alexander, but it's true. The opposite of addiction is connection. And I've had some pretty amazing conversations with people when they hear that I struggled with an addiction because... I don't look the part. I really don't look the part. I look like a relief society president. Let's be honest. Yeah, you right? do.
0: That just means the lady in charge of all the women for all of you non LDS people. <laughs> just
1: the super Mormon woman that yeah, the everyone. PTA just...
0: president of the church. I mean, it that's was, was. and that's
1: what I was the whole time I was drinking. Yeah. Was the PTA president who could just get stuff done. But I was missing the connection, and I love, I love talking about it, and I just I. I ran into a woman a a year or so ago, and she, I dated her son, and she was asking how I was doing, and I was kind of catching her up. And when we talked about, I mean, it came up that I'd struggled with drinking, and she's like, Oh my gosh, you didn't have to tell me all that. I hope it's, I hope you didn't feel like I, she's actually a therapist, and so she's like, I hope it didn't feel like I tried to, therapize you and force you to tell me that and I said I said I don't mind I love telling my story I said I'm a loud healer I want to heal loudly so that people who are dying silently know that there's somewhere to go
0: well and that's the gift I think I owe all of my changes to Brene Brown as well because being perfect in my marriage and being perfect and thinking divorce was awful the second we bring our shame Out of the darkness, what we always say, shame grows in the darkness. Mm -hmm. The minute we can share our struggles and our healing, whatever it is, out loud, Mm -hmm. that vulnerability allows us to connect with people. And it keeps us from walking the perfect path. I think that's the crazy thing about addicts. We all get scared of them and think you should go and heal. But they are the most vulnerable people out there because they're admitting they have something that's a weakness to them. Mm -hmm. And that is the way everybody should be. Should you tell everyone your struggles and your stories? No, only the ones that deserve it. But what a gift it is that you got to go to a place and be vulnerable and choose yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, we both would have stayed on the perfectionist path and probably self-destructed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would have. I didn't
0: struggle with addiction, but I was also very invisible to my first husband and I was on autopilot. Yeah. Just, you know, no joy. I refer to it as the Wizard of Oz, the black and white life. And the minute I got away from being perfect all the time and left him and it's like my life came into color. And that's why we both wanted to do this. Yeah. Because people don't talk about the hard stuff or the crazy stuff or the ugly stuff. And as hard as it was for you to share that, I want to say thank you so much for being brave because you know, as your friend, I've imagined what it was like, Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize the trajectory was so fast from introduction to full on addiction and blacking out. And, um, I see you with your babies and you're an amazing mama. And I want you Mm -hmm. to know
1: that. Thank you. I'm very proud of you. Kids remember it. My kids, they know I drank. I got a cart on my two year sobriety date. My youngest made me a card that said congratulations Aww. mom on 2 years and last year we went to olive garden on my 3 year sobriety date and they always ask you if you're there to celebrate something yeah but i always think birthdays immediately so my kids knew like hey i've been sober for 3 years let's go to dinner so we get to olive garden and the server comes over and is like are you guys celebrating any anything any birthdays or anything tonight and i was like no we're just here and He's like, okay, let me go get your drinks. And as he walked away, my youngest said, we are celebrating, mom. We're celebrating that you quit drinking. Well, right as she said that, the general manager of the restaurant was passing by, and I saw him catch up to my server, and they had a little conversation. And then the general manager came back to our table, and he's like, I'm sorry, did I overhear one of your children say you're here celebrating your sobriety? And I'm like, yeah, we are, but it's it's no big deal. And he's like, how long have you been sober? And I'm like, three years today. And he's like, I just hit seven years last month. And he's like, that's impressive. He's like, I'm really proud of you. Mm-hmm. And it was such a cool thing to have this guy that I'd known for like six seconds yeah. say, I'm really proud of you. Yeah. And as someone who knows addiction, it's like he was proud of me. And then he's like, I want all of you guys to pick a dessert tonight. And it's on me. And it was just like, it's such a cool, so I don't hide it from my kids. Yeah, And it's, it's my, it's part of my story and it's a part of their story. And there's lessons
0: in there. There's lessons in there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So anyway. Well, thank you for the
0: vulnerability and for, um, also for any of, any of those out there who are struggling or know someone who struggles, go look up some of the resources that Andrea recommended obviously she believes in them wholeheartedly and yeah so we want you to be able to feel free to look those up and i'll
1: post i'll post some of those on our social media when this by the time this releases i'll post it yeah because there's some really great resources and you can find help it's never never too late never lose hope because it's never too late yep okay thanks for listening thanks you guys